and transform their world and create a link to uh, Europe that is not dependent on anyone else. And uh, they're, you know, here they're operating like a major economic power that they have become. The question arises, who regards this initiative as a threat? The United States is deeply hostile to it. That's Tariq Ali, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Tariq Ali on Afghanistan, China, and the decline of U.S. power. Part one of a special two-part program. The ignominious debacle in Afghanistan was predictable and predicted. Afghans, like most people, don't appreciate foreign invaders occupying their country. Just ask the British and the Russians. But the U.S. and its imperial hubris thought it was different. It would nation-build in Afghanistan and bring democracy to that land. Meanwhile, China is watching the U.S. squander its wealth on military adventures. The decline of U.S. power is evident. In its place, China is rapidly expanding its influence. Its Belt and Road Initiative is an ambitious global infrastructure project, a new Silk Road. China, as the quip goes, had a bad couple of centuries of wars, invasions, famine, and disease. But now it is back. It is a force to be reckoned with. Its economic clout is increasing, and it will soon be the world's biggest economy. Our guest today is Tariq Ali, an internationally renowned writer and activist who was born in Lahore, Pakistan. For many years, he's been based in London, where he is an editor of New Left Review. He's the author of many books, including The Clash of Fundamentalisms, Pirates of the Caribbean, Speaking of Empire and Resistance, and The Forty-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold. He was at his home in London when I talked with him on September 9th and 10th. Welcome to the program. Very good to be with you again, uh, David. Uh, After all these years, we've had a big interval in our regular conversations. Well, you and I are both very fond of poetry. Uh, Here's a couplet from Yeats that I'm sure you're familiar with. We had fed the heart on fantasies, the hearts grown weary from the fair. I want to segue that into the discussion about Afghanistan and the fantasies that we've fed ourselves over the decades. Where's a good place to start, by the way, with Afghanistan? 1978, 1979? Yeah. Two things, David. Uh, when the PTPA, basically a small group of Afghan communists who were placed in strategic positions inside the army and the air force, uh, decided that uh, the then president Daoud, a relation of the king, Zahir Shah, was becoming too dictatorial and too closely linked to the Shah of Iran they decided to seize power, which they did. 
they characterized this as a revolution, which I argued even at that time wasn't the case. I said, effectively, it's a coup d'etat carried out by left-wing army officers, as has happened in parts of the Middle East, but happened in the Middle East with huge mass support. It was obvious when it happened in Iraq, in uh, Egypt, before that, that these people had mass support because they were linked to some form of politics, nationalist, anti-imperialist politics, uh, and had participated in, you know, on, on various levels in fighting against the occupying power, which was largely British. Uh, prior to the war and remained under British control even after the war to a certain extent. In Afghanistan, this was a tiny People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan consisting of two factions, the uh, People's Faction, Khalq, and the Flag Faction, Parcham. And they fought each other more than they did anything else for power. And, you know, there was an appalling situation when uh, Nur Muhammad Taraki, the leader of the Parcham faction, was assassinated on the orders of the Khalkis. And sort of a tribal dispute within the so-called left-wing party started a process which led to total alienation on the part of the population. The religious groups got stronger and stronger. And uh, the government was beginning to lose support very rapidly. And the United States had already, even before the Soviet intervention, started backing the ultra-religious groups, the fundamentalist groups, and were dealing with them, as well as the Pakistani inter-services intelligence, to get rid of this regime. And Hafizullah Amin, who seized power after the killing of Turkey, was a crazy guy, in my opinion. You know, it's a Pol Potist faction within the world communist movement. I mean, he, he, some of the speeches, I you know, don't have them in front of me, but he, he would say things like 50% of the population is against us, 50% is for us. If you kill the 50% who oppose us, we'd have a majority. I mean, this is a sort of interesting form of political philosophy, but, you know, this is how they operated. And when the Russians tried to moderate them, they said, well, what are you moderating us? Stalin created the Soviet Union in this fashion, and we will create Afghanistan. I mean, just like that. I mean, the Russians were very upset, by the way. I know this for a fact. So ultimately, when uprisings began in Herat and other places, the Russians felt that this regime could be toppled and should be the Hafizullah Amin regime. Prior to that, the entire Politburo, with Brezhnev in command and uh, Yuri Andropov as a very brilliant head of intelligence in the KGB, they said, we must not intervene. The first vote that was taken was against intervention. Then some information came to them. 
I don't know what that was. I've been searching for this. No one has been able to tell me so far. Some information came to them, and I think probably leaked. It was disinformation, misinformation leaked by the uh, CIA or the DIA, which suggested that Hafez Al-Amin was actually working for a Western intelligence operation. Now, I have no evidence for that. I have not been able to find the proof. I have to say it's not totally impossible that this was the case. In any case, whatever it was, it convinced them, and this time they voted unanimously, even Andropov, who was completely opposed to it, came on board, and they sent in an intervention force. Soviet army went into Afghanistan using largely Central Asian soldiers who were both closer to the region, semi-part of it, and in some cases the Tajiks, of course, spoke the same language, etc. And I remember the day after I had to write an editorial for the newspaper I was editing, Socialist Challenge, a back-page lead story. And my instinct was... Soviet troops out of Afghanistan. And my argument was, this is the situation in Afghanistan is awful, it's very confused, but a Soviet intervention now is going to provide the big focus to unite all the religious groups against evil atheistic communism, which has taken over our country, and it will end badly, because it's not going to be a popular intervention. And that is. And so I said they should withdraw. And I was attacked by lots of people, uh, Ahmed Rashid, many, many others, saying, you know, Tariq has lost his marbles. Why is he opposing the Soviet intervention? Because many people on the Pakistani left were delighted, hoping that if the intervention was successful, the Red Army would move southwards and get rid of General Ziaul Haq as well. This sort of substitutionist thinking, we can't do it ourselves, so let a big power come and do it for us. Very common. I was opposed to that, and I said this will end very badly, and it will create chaos in that region for years to come. Now, just to let you know that I've just put together in a collection, all my writings on Afghanistan over 40 years, starting with that editorial. And some of the young people who've been editing the book and thinking, are just amazed, saying, wasn't this the position of the whole left? I said, far from it. I was completely isolated on this, on every level, really. But I was convinced that it was the wrong thing. So that's what happened. For Bresne, uh, for uh, Brzezinski and Carter, this became a big opportunity to pour in money to the Mujahideen and the religious groups, bring in Osama bin Laden from Saudi Arabia, which they did because no Saudi prince was ready to go to leave the jihad. But they said, we have this friend who's very into all this stuff. Take him. So bin Laden recommended by the Saudi royal family and the United States ended up in Afghanistan to lead the jihad together with other groups. And this war began, which wrecked Afghanistan because, you know, it was a war fought 
the Russians fought it largely with helicopters and planes, just like the United States does now. Um, and they ultimately had to uh, had to pull out. In my book, The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, a chronicle foretold, I also tell a story. I was invited to speak at a United Nations conference in uh, Tashkent, in 1985, and I made a sharp speech on, you know, on the world, but including a section on Afghanistan, in which I said that the Soviet intervention has been a disaster, and uh, I think you people should pull out. It's a huge mistake. Acknowledge it and pull out. Thinking I'd be attacked by the Russian delegation, which was the largest delegation in the conference. On the contrary, a lot of the Russian delegates, academicians, uh, scholars, KGB people probably, surrounded me after my speech and said, today you have to have lunch with us. And one of them said, we don't know whether you know this, but our new general secretary, Mikhail Gorbachev, at a meeting for cadres two weeks ago, which we all attended, said things that are virtually the same as you're saying, have no doubt we're going to pull out. I was delighted, naturally. And I came back and told friends and Pakistani friends and others, especially Ahmed, Ahmed Rashid, I said, I don't rely too much on the Soviet Union staying there too long. I've got it from inside sources. They're going to pull out. No, they said, it's impossible. You're dreaming again. So they did pull out, and then a mess was created. The Mujahideen gangs started fighting each other, and the Pakistani intelligence agencies then suggested that these students and refugees they'd been training in the camps in Pakistan were now ready for action. And the Taliban, which the word means students, uh, trained, armed, uh, by Pakistan, with U.S. support, and the U.S. green-lighted the Taliban intervention. So they went in and defeated the other groups, which later became the Northern Alliance and took charge of the country. And they would talk to all the, uh, you know, they would talk to the United States, to most people, till 9-11. That's when they became total enemies again. That was 20 years ago now. Uh, you mentioned uh, General Zia-ul-Haq. He was the uh, Islamist military dictator of uh, Pakistan in this period of the late 1970s and until his death in a mysterious air accident in uh, the late 1980s. But I think if, if a history were to be written of this period, uh, surely uh, the role of Brzezinski, whom you mentioned, Carter's national security advisor, uh, was absolutely central to the Afghan crisis. Uh, on July 3rd, 1979, fully six months before the Soviet intervention, Carter signed the first directive for secret aid uh, to what would become the uh, Mujahideen. In an interview in the Nouvelle Observateur in 1998, Brzezinski was asked, uh, if he regretted instigating uh, the Afghan uh, intervention and aid. And this is what he said. 
uh, regret what? The secret operation was an excellent idea. It had the effect of drawing the Russians into the Afghan trap. And you want me to regret it? The day that the Soviets officially crossed the border, I wrote to President Carter, we now have the opportunity of giving to the USSR its Vietnam War. And then he asked rhetorically, what's more important in the history of the world, the Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet empire? A few stirred up Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? Yeah, well, I quoted this in my book, Clash of Fundamentalisms, and used it to show how the U.S. uh, were operating. And Brzezinski is crystal clear. That is what they did. They set a bear trap and the Russians fell into it. And uh, confirming my views that the Soviet intervention was a huge mistake. Uh, I don't think on its own it it led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, but it certainly uh, played a part. And, you know, one could ask the same question. What was more important, at least trying to preserve the Soviet Union on some level, or this bunch of Afghan sectarians in the PDPA who didn't know how to organize anything? And the answer is it would have been much better to leave Afghanistan alone. So um, that's what happened. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now we have the final act. I hope it is the final act. A 40-year war in Afghanistan. Just imagine what that does to the population. Not simply the women and children who suffer the most, the traumas, the fears created. And uh, so as long as this new regime can impose some sort of peace, despite the Islamic State, K, as it calls itself, it's like crazies, um, it can only benefit the people. I know all the problems, by the way, with the Taliban, their attitude to women. I would just say there's a very interesting piece by Anand Gopal in The New Yorker, um, who uh, has reported from Afghanistan very well, who basically outlines how the women were treated during the 20-year occupation. Apart from some cities where NGOs poured in money, for the bulk of Afghanistan, the bulk of women in that country received nothing whatsoever. The countryside remained untouched. And even in many cities, smaller groups of women were offered support uh, than the entire population of women. So we will see how things develop. I'm not a that optimistic. But I think the people of Afghanistan have to sort this out for themselves. What we have seen, the attempt of two big powers, first the Soviet Union and then the United States, to occupy the country, the first for 10 years, the second for 20 years, hasn't been able to change anything. That is the reality of it. And the fact that food and 
uh, clothes and stuff was being imported from outside Afghanistan to feed their own armies and those who were collaborating uh, with them is a sign of what that occupation was. Uh, The one thing, David, which uh, I think we should give the United States uh, uh, credit for uh, is that on the uh, import-export front, they overtook the Taliban. During the Taliban period in office till 9-11, the share of Afghanistan's opium in the global market was 20 to 24%. After 20 years' occupation, this share is 90%. So the, the scale of it has enriched many Americans and many members of the local elite and many farmers working with the United States. They have grown rich. The Taliban had this trade under strict control, now being threatened with sanctions and blackmail. Whether they will stop it, I don't know. I mean, it might be their only source of income apart from lithium. So we shall see. Um, and what happens on that? I mean, if I were the DEA, uh, which basically concentrates on Mexico and Central America, I would do a very special investigation of how this trade existed, survived, and who benefited for the last 20 years. You wrote in a recent article in The Nation that uh, the Taliban captured Kabul on August 15th The speed was astonishing. The strategic acumen remarkable. A 20-year occupation rolled up in a week as the puppet armies disintegrated. The puppet president, that would be uh, Ashraf Ghani, hopped a helicopter to Uzbekistan, then a jet to the United Arab Emirates. It was, you write, a huge blow to the American empire and its underling states. No amount of spin can cover up the debacle. <clears throat> well, that's it. What I should have added uh, uh, as well, David, is that the fleeing puppet president, uh, Shravani, uh, fled with suitcases packed with dollars. We don't know whether they reached the total of a billion but millions of dollars went with him. And I'm curious to see uh, whether the uh, Uzbek government, Uzbekistan government, made him pay uh, overweight charges at the airport or not. I hope they did, because that money alone would be helpful to the employees at the airport as a bonus. But I don't think they did. And so he's there, Ashraf Ghani. And I think he's in either one of the Gulf states or in Oman uh, with sitting on all these uh, uh, dollars. This is a figure that the American media in particular were shamelessly promoting uh, right up to the uh, end till he just jumped ship and ran for cover. And as for the collapse of the puppet armies, Uh, This happened very rapidly. They did not fight the uh, Taliban at all. 
There was no resistance to the day. You have 300,000 trained people in your army. Uh, you pay them. They're your mercenaries. You have the right, given how much you've paid them over the years, to hope that in some part, some area in the north, in the center, in the southern part of the country, they would put up a fight. But they knew which way the wind was blowing, and they didn't. Some uh, uh, wanted to become refugees and leave abroad, as happened with the South Vietnamese army, as happened in other parts of the world. Others just said, we don't want to fight our brothers. I mean, many joined the Taliban, forced armies, gave them their weapons and said, God be with you. For our uh, listeners in the United States, Canada and Australia, who may not know who the Taliban are, uh, it's often described as a Pashtun uh, formation. Is, is that accurate? It is largely Pashtun. But given the speed with which the rest of the country collapsed, I mean, the, uh, you wonder now whether the support for the Taliban hasn't grown beyond the Pashtuns. The basic, uh, uh, the Afghans, very correctly, in my opinion, have historically not done uh, surveys or had a census on the basis of particular tribal ethnicities. Everyone is an Afghan. But, of course, we know that the Pashtuns are probably anywhere between 40 or 50 percent of the population of Afghanistan. And then it's divided to the Tajiks uh, on the Russian border, or now the border with Central Asia, are the second. And the third are the Hazaras, the Shia, who basically, uh, whose, whose base has been in Herat. Now, in the past, the Tajiks and the Hazaras fought against the Taliban and basically defended the U.S. occupation. But a lot has changed subsequently. The Iranians are not in favor of fighting the Taliban at all. They've been behind-the-scenes talks in which they've been collaborating sometimes uh, uh, for, for a common cause, uh, i.e. to capture... American spies who they think have been doing bad things to the Iranians uh, as well. So um, the occupation itself promoted the Tajiks, as imperialism often does, whether it's the British or the French or divide and rule. And so they promote the uh, Tajiks and uh, let's hope that this doesn't create too many tensions. The Turks are never mentioned in this. People talk about Russia, China, the United States, Pakistan. But Erdogan and the Turks have become huge players because he gave asylum to lots of refugees too. And I think the whether there is a new civil war, all-out civil war, which I hope will not take place uh, because the Iranians are not in favor of it, the Americans aren't in favor of it, nor are the Russians and the Chinese. But if Erdogan tries to start something of his own accord, uh, it won't succeed, but it could create 
uh, it could create a, a mess in the region. Uh, the other thing uh, worth discussing or mentioning briefly, David, is that the Taliban are looking very closely at the Iranian constitutional model. Because even though they have differences with the Shia, which are sort of theological, they are quite impressed by the model. Uh, rather than picking up uh, the sort of fairly debased tribal model created by the British of tribal councils and all this. Uh, I am told that some of the more intelligent uh, Taliban people are saying, why don't we have a model based on Iran? So we have elections, you can be presidential contests, we have a parliament, etc., etc. How far this will go, I do not know. But certainly, I'm pretty sure that this is one model that uh, that is being uh, that is being discussed. You're listening to Tariq Ali on Afghanistan, China, and the decline of U.S. power. Part one of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and Vijay Prashad's book. Washington Bullets, the CIA Coups and Assassinations, by giving us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, or MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. There are, of course, uh, many Pashtuns in neighboring uh, Pakistan. Uh, they were divided by the Duran line drawn by the British imperialists in the 1890s. But what about that huge Pashtun uh, population? I, I believe... Karachi is the largest Pashtun city in the world. Yeah, that is true. The Pashtuns faced with unemployment, seeing that the bulk of industrialization in the country was taking place in Karachi, which was the port town and became the industrial center of Pakistan, and after that Lahore, did what people do in all the countries where this happens. Uh, they went in search of jobs. And it was an internal migration. And Karachi is now got a huge uh, Pashtun population. It isn't a majority as yet, but it is a huge population and it plays a part in national politics. So those Pashtuns who have moved away from Pakhtunkhwa, the frontier province, uh, as it used to be called, are not going to go back, in my opinion. Karachi has become their home. And even though they they are not fully integrated with Punjabis and Sindhis, nonetheless, that is what they see as their home. Pashtuns who live in Pakhtunkhwa province, on the edge of Afghanistan, I mean, there's a huge, huge border. Pashtuns travel across the border. No one has ever been able to close that border off, neither the Russians, nor the Americans, nor the Pakistanis. I mean, sometimes you go on the uh, line of the border and there's a Pashtun village on one side 
and in a Pashtun village on the other side, which used to be one village. So the notion that these people don't communicate with each other is ridiculous. The one positive thing in the Pashtun areas of Pakistan has been the emergence of the PTM, the Pashtun the Pashtun self-defense movement which has built mass organizations, has two members in parliament, and rejects violence of any sort. So for those who've got stereotypes of the Pashtuns as basically violent tribal people, they've both forgotten Abdul Khan, Abdul Ghaffar Khan's campaign against the British Empire, totally non-violent. And they can't explain the PTM now existing often harassed unduly and brutally by the intelligence services, is also rejected violence. So there are good signs within the Pashtun movement. Whereas uh, in the 19th century, the British used to describe the Afghans as savages, or if you prefer, noble savages, i.e. like the native population of the United States was described, or the Maoris, or the Aboriginal people in Australia, wherever the empire went, they were fighting savages, which is particularly nonsensical in the case of Afghanistan and the population there, Pashtun and non-Pashtun, because it has a very, the language itself is a tributary of uh, Pashto, of Persian, and they have a record of literature and art, which quite honestly, if you compare it to when it was done in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, is on a par with anything produced in the West. So, um, to describe your enemies permanently as savages, the most dangerous people in the world, be careful, they will do this, who will do that, ultimately exposes itself. In an article, I believe in the New Left Review called Debacle in Afghanistan, uh, you write that about Pakistan that it has undoubtedly provided strategic assistance to the Taliban and for whom this is a huge political military triumph. Why is it a military and political triumph? Because um, even though the Taliban and the Pakistani military have had their tense moments, they are an organization, uh, especially in the past, that were created in Pakistan and sent to fight. And secondly, it was the advice of the Pakistani military after 9-11, which they imposed in strong language, not in violence. They said, do not resist the occupation. At the present time, you'll be wiped out. The mood therein, they will wipe you out. Go and rest. You know, come over to our side shave your beards, behave like normal human beings, and don't do anything that could lead to your destruction. And this is what they basically, the Taliban's carried that out. And then as it became obvious that the United States were going to leave, uh, the Pakistanis clearly offered strategic advice. I have no 
concrete information or names of officers, but I do know that a number of retired Pakistani military officers were embedded in the Taliban armies. Uh, the role they played, I'm sure, was partially, not completely, responsible for the speed and the strategic acumen uh, that the Afghans uh, showed. Because in the Pakistan military academy, it's not just a joke academy. They do discuss guerrilla warfare. They read General Jab, Mao Zedong, Che Guevara, just to study the methods being used. And in many ways, you could see some of that at the speed in which the Taliban entered and uh, the the sort of way in which the, uh, they took towns uh, and uh, where they were based, how they fought. Um, I must say it, it took me by surprise. I thought it would take them much, much longer. And it took the Biden by surprise. He didn't think they were that strong, which is a failure of his office to read intelligence reports, because I don't think too many people in the intelligence services had any doubts as to what was taking place in Afghanistan. And if you look at the Washington papers that were published in the Washington Post in 2019, I mean, they're fascinating. This is an official federal report in which they talk to uh, everyone. You know, the mode of army of senior officers, generals, civil servants, state employees is very clear. We're losing this war. And one of the generals says, God knows other people on the ground are lying so much, saying, no, no, all will be well. We know all is not going to be well. So it's not the case that they shouldn't have been surprised. All this information was uh, known. And I assume that is why they did decide, basically, to withdraw. They couldn't win this war. Talk about the Modi regime uh, in New Delhi. Uh, he's the prime minister, the head of the Bhartiya Janta Party, which can only be described as a Hindu nationalist uh, political organization. What kind of uh, role have they played um, in Afghanistan, for example? In Afghanistan, the Modi government backed the United States to the hilt, uh, gave help to the puppet government, hoped that this would be a permanent solution created so that they could have a friendly government on Pakistan's northern borders, etc. The Indian press, by and large, treated the Taliban victory with headlines saying victory for terrorism, etc., etc. They are now learning the truths, and there have been messages saying, no, no, we don't want to be enemies with you. But basically, Modi, I mean, to call him a, a Hindu nationalist, I think what we're seeing in India is a sort of, you know, semi-fascist government, which has come to power with popular supporters. Of course, uh, fascists did in Europe in the 30s. I mean, Hitler was elected and has attempted to create a new consensus in India based on bogus Hindutva ideology, a massive rewriting of history, targeting of ethnic minorities, especially the Muslims, who are a very large minority, challenging the Indian constitution and amending it on Kashmir, 
which was promised a referendum in 1947 when India became independent, and effectively shifting the country and its capitalist class sharply to the right. That has been Modi's achievement. And if you like, Nehru created a social democratic consensus in 47. Modi has now totally destroyed and shattered that consensus and created his own consensus, which is a monolithic Hinduism, which it never was in its entire history which is the elevation of Ram into the equivalent of a universalist God, like God and Allah and Jehovah, and an attempt to change the very culture that has existed in India for hundreds of years by taking back, saying we were repressed by the Mughals, we were repressed by this, we were repressed by that, you know, totally ignoring history of what the Mughal Empire was, how it functioned, what its military structure was, how leading Indian Hindu Sikh chiefs worked with the Mughals or part of its armies, fought with them, uh, etc. So history is being rewritten on a grand style. And um, as you know, like it is in other parts of the world, but in India, it's very, very noticeable that this is... Uh, happened. How long he will stay in power, I don't know. I couldn't predict. But his motivations are clear to use attacks on the Muslim minority in India to try and shore up more support, uh, not dissimilar to the targeting of the Jews by the German fascists, uh, and to say you're not, uh, he's gone beyond Hitler. I mean, Hitler never offered the Jews the chance to uh, to become Christians. He was very hardline on that, but Modi is clever in a way, saying to the Muslims, no one is going to touch you if you convert back to your original faith. Well, what original faith and when this original faith was, he doesn't care. But that is a pressure that is being put on these communities, and that changes India's foreign policy as well. The close links with Israel, the sending of Israeli military advisors to help the Indians work out a strategy in Kashmir and combat terrorism in uh, Mumbai. I mean, one of those Mumbai terrorists was asked, why did you attack the Jewish uh, home in Mumbai? The and he said, because the Israelis are in Kashmir. We know that. Not that that justifies it, but it is a reason for them. You know, it's not just a random anti-Semitic attack. It's linked to Israel and its activities. So uh, Modi at the present moment seems immovable. And then because the consensus in India has changed, this Congress party has changed as well. Pandering to all this, but, you know, in a slightly softer way. It's a more cosmetic version of what uh, Modi and his party are up to. And it is, uh, you know, they can't even fight them politically now because they gave in too much. The same time you see in India the collapse of the, by and large, the collapse of the left. I mean, in Bengal, the CPM didn't get a single seat in the Bengali parliament. And the Communist Party of India, Marxists, ran that province for, what, about 30 years? 
I think the fact it didn't get a seat is not unrelated to running the province. God knows what is going to uh, come out. Kerala alone shines a bit as a beacon. So it's a grim situation in that country. And I have to tell you, I have been to India you know, some years ago, but I now have no desire to visit that country. I just don't feel like it. It's not something uh, I would participate in an event online, but I don't want to travel there. You might know that uh, I can't travel. Yeah, I know. You've been banned. Of course, I'm fully aware of that. That's 10 years now. Yeah. And that was under the previous regime of Manmohan Singh and Chidambaram, who were regarded as somewhat uh, progressive or enlightened. Anyway, uh, it's it's painful for me not to be able to uh, travel there as I've had dear friends and, uh, as I mentioned, my, my Guruji um, yeah. there. But uh, to go back to uh, Kashmir for a moment, in August of 2019, the little autonomy uh, Kashmir had was effectively eliminated. In fact, uh, it has been annexed uh, by New Delhi. It's being uh, run out of New Delhi as a union territory rather than as an independent state. It remains the most densely militarized zone uh, on earth. Uh, What might be a a solution uh, that would satisfy uh, Kashmiris on both sides of the border in Pakistan Kashmir as well as Indian administered Kashmir? In my opinion, and this has been my view for a long, long time, the only solution that would probably satisfy most Kashmiris would be uh, independence, to be truthful. But given that there, no one is going to grant them that, at least the very existence of a totally autonomous republic with its military safety guaranteed by India, Pakistan and China, three countries which could do that and let them get on with running the country. And it's uh, it would certainly bring a great deal of happiness to Kashmiris if they got that autonomy. The, even this is now a utopian notion. I don't know, probably. But that is what people would feel. We don't want to be under the control of either power. Okay, we can't be independent in this day and age, but at least give us an autonomy guaranteed by all the local states. Might that idea transfer to the Palestinians in the occupied territories? I had not thought of that. But whether the Israelis would even think about giving them a genuine autonomy I don't know. I mean, I don't think that that's uh, possible. They, it's the Bantustan strategy for the Israelis, and uh, they would keep total control. I mean, were they to offer occupied Palestine total autonomy with the guarantee that with the demand that the Palestinians will not create their own army and air force. I think most Palestinians, given what's happened, would probably accept that, David. But no one trusts the Israelis now, ever. 
because they've broken every promise under the sun. So they won't be taken uh, seriously. And given that the United States and Israel are both in each other's pockets, that doesn't create a lot of confidence either. And given that there's no Arab government worth speaking of who would actually defend such an autonomy and be part of any new deal that was made, it would seem hopeless uh, to them. I mean, Iraq destroyed the Egyptians subsidized by the United States to do uh, nothing, Syria in a bad way. The destruction of the Arab world has been a huge, huge blow for the political culture of that region. So I would find it difficult to recommend autonomy to the Palestinian friends. They might have to accept such a solution. But my solution for Palestine is single unitary state of Israel-Palestine with equal rights for all its citizens probably would be better than autonomy. That is why the Zionists will not accept it, because they say the Palestinian population grows, uh, you know, at a larger pace because these Muslims breed like rabbits. You know, a sort of semi-fascist phraseology like this is very common in, in Israel. But, I mean, that's, I think, the only, strangely enough, it's the only realistic solution, which for the long term is a single state. Jumping continents for a moment, uh, you wrote a book called Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, in which you were celebrating the uh, left movements uh, in Latin America, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Lula in uh, Brazil, Correa in Ecuador, etc. That has basically fallen apart. What's your analysis of why that's happened? It's different in different cases. Well, it has fallen apart and it hasn't fallen apart. The Venezuelans basically made a number of serious errors on the economic front. Uh, They didn't have any decent economists, in my opinion, advising them. And then the Americans imposed sanctions on them on the movement of Venezuelan oil, etc., etc. So while the Chinese and Russians still deal with them, the condition of ordinary people on whom Chavez had based his entire strategy after his death, it had started even when he was alive, but after his death certainly began to fall apart. Though it has to be said that the Maduro regime hasn't been toppled despite all the maneuvers by imperialism to do so. They found this joker who looked a bit like Obama, who they cultivated, uh, and got all the European countries, the underling states, to recognize him. So they removed recognition from the official government of Venezuela and gave this guy, Guado, recognition. The Bank of England will not release the gold assets of the Venezuelan government. And it's astonishing what they've done. So they're in a huge crisis, but the Americans had thought that all they needed to do is to bribe the Venezuelan army, and that would be it. They'd get Guado in power and then change things. And they were a bit surprised when that didn't work, and it didn't work for two reasons. One is that the Venezuelan army still has a lot of Chavistas in it, and they said, hey, hang on, we're Venezuela. Can't just buy us over. 
Uh, and secondly, the Venezuelan army has done very well, both under Chavez and Maduro. It's very well paid, you know, in various ways. And so they weren't able to succeed in that. So Maduro is still in power. In Bolivia, they organized a political coup to topple uh, Morales, and he went into exile. But his political party won the last election, and Morales went back as a leader of the party, not of the government. Huge receptions. So it's not completely over. There's not been a crushing defeat which has prevented anything from moving. Korea has been defeated, and this imbecile guy uh, who, he's, who, who was his deputy who became president and completely sold out to the United States is also lost now, and it's not a good situation there. But in Brazil, the victory of Bolsonaro, part of the big shift to the right with uh, Trump and Modi and all that, and the, the Bolsonaro is so completely crazy not just on COVID, but on many, many other things, that even within the army now, there's a feeling he's got to go. And uh, the opinion polls are showing that Lula would sweep the country in the next elections. That can't be ruled out. And the West, who had initially backed Bolsonaro, are now also getting nervous just because of his, they can't control him. He's too crazy for them, completely irrational on many issues. Uh, repression is out of control. So um, I think uh, Lula's victory cannot be totally ruled out. The same thing happened in Argentina. They got rid of the Kirchner government, and now they've re-elected that party to power. So it's not, and in Mexico, they have a government which is not as radical as the others were in their heyday, but it's still something. Lopez Operado is not a president they like. You know, I mean, he speaks up on issues. I mean, he gave a big defense, for instance, of Julian Assange the other day. I would say that we've had some setbacks in South America, certainly, but not on a scale where you can say there's nothing to hope for, everything has been ruled out. You were just listening to Tariq Ali on Afghanistan, China, and the decline of U.S. power. Part one of a special two-part program. Tariq Ali, an internationally renowned writer and activist, was born in Lahore, Pakistan. For many years, he's been based in London, where he's an editor of New Left Review. His articles appear in major newspapers and journals all over the world. He was at his home in London when I talked with him on September 9th and 10th. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Arundhati Roy, Chris Hedges, Kianga Yamata-Taylor, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. We also have a series of programs with Tariq Ali. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Tariq Ali on Afghanistan, China, and the Decline of U.S. Power, 
and for Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, the CIA Coups and Assassinations, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Farid Ayaz and Abu Muhammad of Pakistan singing Kangala. CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary, home to Treaty 7 and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3.